Welcome Truth Seekers all across the Fruited Plain. I'm your host, Kim S. Anderson, bringing you Civics Made Simple. Hashtag we are exceptional. These are bite-sized civics lessons designed for you to take and share wherever you go. These are important times. Times that American citizens like you and me need to know how our rights came to be and the responsibilities that go along with them. Well, hello, hello everyone. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson for Civics Made Simple, welcoming you to our latest episode entitled Presidential Power. If you are listening to this in 2021, it seems to be going right along with what's happening in the world and in the country. You can't plan this stuff. You can't make it up. But we just go, we just do the lessons and somehow it corresponds with what's, with what's going on. And as we get started, just a reminder that we are following along in the uh, civics um educational program created by Alpha Omega Publishers and just want to give them a shout out um, that so you know that this is where we're getting our information and format as we bring you these episodes. So today, yeah, it's called Presidential Power. Let's talk about the executive branch. Get excited. So starting um, in our lesson in our episode today, We're obviously going to be talking about the actual powers of the president and how those powers, executive powers, are derived from the Constitution. So at the time of the American Revolution, um, the colonies had adopted governments made up of three branches, and those branches included the executive branch, the legislative branch, and judicial systems like that should sound really familiar to you. Right. And many of our early leaders, such as um, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, had read the book entitled Spirit of the Laws, written by the French philosopher Montesquieu. And they adopted his ideas for a government that included a system of checks and balances and the separation of powers. And these specific colonial states became the examples of governmental structure for the men who wrote the Constitution. Now, executive power in the federal government is vested primarily in the office of the president. Other offices include that of vice president and the heads of various executive departments. All the executive offices of government answer to the president. And I'll, I'll be mentioning those just a little bit later in uh, today's episode. But the writers of the Constitution observed the success of the colonial governments and determined that the separation of powers and the system of checks and balances provided sufficient protection against the emergence of a strong leader who might become corrupted by power. (laughs) Right. So the result was Article 2 of the Constitution that outlined the office and the duties of president and vice president. And interestingly, when the office of president was established, the president was provided with authority to enforce the constitution and the laws of the land, but limitations were also established to deter absolute power. Remember, they, the founders did not want a monarchy 
They did not want one person to rule and wield that much power. So the early framers envisioned the president as playing a rather weak and insignificant role in the overall management of government. It's really hard for us to sort of grasp that now, right? Um, but often in the early days of our country, uh, the president was referred to as the chief clerk. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine as an indication of the lesser role in the minds of the citizens that the president would play. However, over the years, um, the power and influence of the presidency has grown tremendously, as we know now, um, particularly under the leadership of presidents whose personality and leadership expanded the role. Um, in war times and times of crisis has demanded strong leadership. And, you know, we can look no further than uh, the president that strengthened the role more than probably anyone else was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose presidency encompassed the Great Depression and World War II. And so his leadership, if you want to call it that, um, during those times greatly enhanced the powers of the executive department. Um, so, you know, back in 1788, you know, as America, the United States was just, you know, emerging from the war with England, it was still a newcomer on the, on the, you know, uh, world front. And so as a result, it did not have a significant, a significant role in world affairs. Once again, it's kind of hard for us to picture that, right? But Back then, yeah, the United States wasn't the big guy on the block. So the influence of the first president, George Washington, was primarily exercised in the new and developing nation. Um, and the several basic powers that he was assigned as head of the executive department were listed in Article 2 of the Constitution. But the United States in the 21st century is a different story. Despite challenges by growing economies such as China, the United States, has, as it has for many years, continues to lead the nations of the world in most areas of influence. As its leader, the president has perhaps more authority, power, and influence than any other leader in the world and is often referred to as the leader of the free world. Once again, none of this should be too far removed from you, like this should all sound familiar. But nevertheless, the same basic powers listed in Article 2 are the source of his authority. Article 2 of the Constitution describes the role of the executive branch of government. And the president has been given specific responsibilities to perform in the course of fulfilling his duty, as is the solemn pledge to perform these duties, he takes the following oath or affirmation under the administration of the chief justice. And this is done during the inauguration. And that oath says, I do solemnly swear and affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and will to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, right? It's all about preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution. That's what the president should do. 
Article 2, Sections 2 and 3, then list the responsibilities that are the president's as chief executive officer of the United States. These duties can be summarized as follows. Act as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy in the United States and the militia of the states when called into the actual service of the country. Require reports from the chief officers of each of the departments of the executive branch upon any subject relating to their duties. Grant reprieves and pardons. Make treaties with foreign nations. Appoint with the consent of the, of the Senate ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, justices and judges, justices of the Supreme Court, obviously, and other, judge, other judges, and other officers whose appointment is not established otherwise by the Constitution. Also, fill vacancies in the Senate. Additionally, provide information to Congress and may, under extraordinary circumstances, convene both houses of the Congress, receive foreign ambassadors, take care that the laws be faithfully executed or enforced, and commission all officers of the United States. It seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Okay, but our president does have limitations, right? Because he is not a king. Uh, and the Constitution placed some specific limitations upon his power. So unlike a king, the president does not have the power to make laws. Rather, he is responsible to enforce the laws that are passed by the legislative branch. This division of powers is, the, is what some could, would consider the primary distinction between a president and a king. But I think there's more um, than just that. But the president, our president, relies upon the legislature to pass laws and approve appointments that are in the best interests of the people. And, and he depends on the courts to faithfully interpret those laws according to the Constitution. Now, the president can recommend legislation to Congress, but he must depend upon members of, of his own political party or other interested uh, legislators to actually propose the legislation. And the appointment of, uh, oh, and I'm sorry, and as shown in the listing of duties, several of the president's powers require the approval of the Senate. So he has to work with the Senate. He can't just, you know, work around them. And in the role of president as commander in chief, it has been somewhat limited, though we've seen the presidents work around this. In 1973, um, Congress passed the War Powers Resolution, which requires approval of Congress before the president can authorize the use of military force in any hostile action. But it seems to me that in recent years, especially since 9-11, that that doesn't always happen, right? We've seen that not happen. Now, here's an interesting thing about presidential power and authority, and it's called the enacting of executive orders. We've heard about it, and we, we've, you know, seen a lot of presidents use what they call the power of the pen in issuing executive orders. Now, the interesting thing is that an executive order is a set of instructions that the president might use to any of the executive agencies organizations or department that fall under the purview of the executive branch and of them there are many and so an executive order is similar to a directive that might be issued by the president of a corporation to all the employees and an executive order is then published in the federal register 
and it becomes law for those groups that fall under the order, under the purview of the executive. It becomes law for them 30 days after it's been published. And executive orders carry the same weight as law, but they do not require congressional approval. Now, let's just take a look at the departments and the agencies that fall under the executive branch. We have the State Department, the Treasury Department, the Defense Department, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice, Department of the Interior, the Agricultural Department, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Labor, excuse me, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, Department of Education, Department of Veteran Affairs, and the Department of Homeland Security. In addition, we have the CIA and the EPA, and more than 50 independent federal commissions, including the Federal Reserve Board, which is our central bank of the United States, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. So there are a lot of departments, which I believe um, employ over 3 million people that are now part of the executive branch of government. And when the president issues an executive order, it immediately impacts those agencies that fall under the executive branch and how they implement and execute their responsibilities to the American people. Isn't that interesting? So it's not law legislatively, but it becomes law or becomes an order of being for the agencies that report directly to the president. Now, who do you think has written the most executive orders? And, and apparently executive orders have been around for a while. I mean, even going back to George Washington, um, but they didn't keep records for that, um, you know, that far back. Um, they tried to sort of start with Abraham Lincoln, but not so much. But in the early 1900s, they began to number the presidential executive orders. And now I think we have over 13,000 executive orders. Um, but so far in history, the most executive orders have been written by, of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was in office the longest. Um, Woodrow Wilson. And for those that are in the know, that's not surprising. He uh, FDR had over 3,700 executive orders that he wrote. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had over 1,800. Calvin Coolidge, 1,200. And Teddy Roosevelt, over 1,000. Isn't that interesting? Um, and, and people have debated whether they think, you know, executive orders are constitutional. We have accepted them as constitutional, but I can probably assure you that it is not something that our founders anticipated or expected or hoped that um, that executive orders would take such an important role in the office of the president. They did not anticipate that. Um, but nevertheless, it, you know, it, it continues to be an important aspect of the executive power granted to the president. Um, so, Sometimes, you know, and there have been times that the Supreme Court has stepped in and has said, you know, that's presidential overreach. There's some things that's that's not constitutional. Um, 
but for the most part, you know, executive orders do stand. Um, and, and it has, and some things have been, have been resolved because of executive order. Um, Harry Truman integrated the armed forces. President Eisenhower used an executive order to desegregate schools. Uh, Presidents Kennedy and Johnson barred racial discrimination in federal housing, hiring, and contracting by means of executive orders. President Reagan issued an executive order to bar the use of federal funds for the purpose of promoting abortion. Um, President Clinton reversed it when he came into office. But, you know, some things have been established by executive order. And us now in the 21st century, we just accept them. Um, because we're used to seeing how they've been implemented. And just as a further note, presidential executive orders should not be confused with presidential proclamations. Those are purely ceremonial declarations um, proclaiming something of interest or importance to the citizens and or to the country. And they are never considered law. And so in additionally, in additionally, so in addition, the other office that um, is under the executive branch is the office of the vice president. And Article 2 in Section 1 declares that the vice president shall be the person who receives the second most electoral votes in the House in the vote for presidency. Well, obviously, there have been some changes to how the vice president is selected. And now it becomes the, the responsibility of the newly nominated presidential candidates to name uh, his or her vice presidential choice. And so the vice president constitutionally uh, serves as the president of the Senate and he or she shall preside over the proceedings involving the opening of the electoral votes during the election of a president. And so there you have it in a nutshell, some of the powers of the president and where they are derived. And so coming up next, we're going to be talking about, <laughs> it's just crazy. We're going to be talking about electing a president and that actual process that's done constitutionally on how a president is elected. I mean, I know we just went through that, but I guess it's still good to know. Keep it in the front of our minds. So that will be our next uh, episode, electing a president. And then let me see what's coming up after that. Um, maybe we'll do a case study, the election of 1824, see what that's about. And then we'll go on and talk about the federal bureaucracy. Woo-wee. That should be really interesting. So guys, thanks so much for checking out this episode of Civics Made Simple. Share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, let's keep our, our citizenry civics literate. Let's do our part and do our best to help keep our family and friends literally civics literate. Say that three times fast, right? <laughs> but it has been my pleasure sharing with you today. God bless you guys and we will see you next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Civics Made Simple. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson, inviting you to visit our site, kimsanderson.me.me for the latest and most up-to-date information on our podcast and our store. Follow us at hashtag WeAreExceptional on Instagram and Twitter. 
God bless, and we'll see you next time. Oh,